When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Terrio Media. How to turn debt into wealth is a little bit of a counterintuitive idea to ponder. And I acknowledge you for even showing interest in something like this. And, it, and it's probably because, you know, you heard that using debt to create wealth is how many, if not most of the wealthiest people got wealthy. And you want to be wealthy. I like your style. So stay tuned. I'm going to show you exactly how it's done and how you two can pull it off, regardless of where you're starting from. You ready? Let's go. Welcome to the all-new Epic Real Estate Investing Show, the longest-running real estate investing podcast on the interwebs, your source for housing market updates, creative investing strategies, and everything else you need to retire early. Some audio may be pulled from our weekly videos and may require visual support. To get the full premium experience, check out Epic Real Estate's YouTube channel, epicrei.tv. If you want to make money in real estate, sit tight and stay tuned. If you want to go far, share this with a friend. If you want to go fast, go to reiace.com. Here's Matt. All right, the currently low interest rates may have you considering taking on some debt, even in the midst of economic and geopolitical uncertainty. You know, it's the historically low interest rates that even make this perhaps the most opportune time in history to tackle this subject. Opportunities, they abound if you know how to use debt to create wealth. All right, so let's dive in. Oh, by the way, if you're still looking to get that first deal under your belt, I put together a free training just for you to help you get that first deal done and then how to earn $5,000 a month flipping contracts and properties working in as little as one hour a day. And you can access it at mattsfreetraining.com. In recent years, the word debt has developed something of a bad name or a bad reputation. But the truth is that not all debt is bad. In fact, some types of debt can do you a load of good. And that's to say, I'm not talking about all debt is good. There is a difference. So let's define that first so that you don't make any misinformed and costly mistakes. Whether any given debt is good or bad, it depends on several factors. There's the interest rate and the amount of time it will take you to pay back the loan. Then there's the matter of what you're borrowing the money for. Equally important to consider is your unique tolerance for debt, as taking on debt can be an emotional experience for many. And we don't want to find ourselves in a situation where we're making important decisions based off of our emotions. You know, there's a saying, when emotions rise, intelligence falls. By and large, good debt is borrowing that helps you build long-term wealth. Bad debt, on the other hand, can harm your credit and deplete your finances. So really, good debt makes you money, Bad debt costs you money. Credit card debt is probably the most common example of bad debt. You know, the average card balance is over $6,000 per person in the United States. And it's considered to be a form of bad debt because of its high interest rates. But mostly what people use credit cards for is what makes it bad. You know, dinners out, shopping, vacation, stuff like that. Car loans are examples of bad debt too, because you're taking on debt to buy an asset that depreciates. And even when it comes down to what seems to be necessities, using credit cards to support ongoing living expenses is just not a good use of debt either. Now, on the other hand, student loans are probably the most common example of good debt, given the correlation between 
a college degree, and the higher earnings throughout one's life. However, as of the last decade or so, student loans have gotten a bad rap as a great number of students borrow to fund education and degrees that don't necessarily translate to enough financial rewards to pay the loan back in a reasonable amount of time. So even when it comes to funding an education, whether that be a college education, a trade school, continuing education, self-help or coaching, the earning potential of the skills acquired through the education needs to be evaluated against the cost of the education to determine whether or not it is a good use of debt. Consider another common example of good debt, taking out a mortgage on a new house. You know, for most people, it's not possible to pay for a house outright. However, even if you were able to pay for it in one large payment, there are benefits to taking on debt for a home. You know, paying down a mortgage results in equity in a home as well as potential tax advantages. Not to mention the home is a hedge against inflation. And low-rate, long-term fixed debt can actually be an asset in a highly inflationary environment and to a point where it could make sense to refinance periodically to keep the debt in place. You know, paying off your mortgage, that used to be a badge of honor. And now it's really just a sign that you don't understand how money printing and asset inflation works. Plus, if you continue to make your monthly mortgage payments, there is the additional benefit of improving your credit score. And a good credit score allows you to keep borrowing, getting qualified for better loans, with better terms, with lower rates. And when it comes to big purchases, that savings can amount to be significant. Not to mention, a good credit score gives you flexibility in life, access to better opportunities, and lower insurance premiums. Depending on your circumstances and risk tolerance, leveraged investing can be another good debt strategy. Say you're buying a house for $100,000, and after the first year, your property appreciated 10%. You would have earned $10,000. But if you had invested $20,000 and borrowed the balance, your rate of return would have been 50%, five times the return, all because you just borrowed the money. I mean, how much faster could you get wealthy if your returns were multiplied by five? And all with less risk as well. If you'd like to take a deeper dive into using leverage and building a real estate portfolio, I made a special training on how to do it not five times faster, but 10 times faster. How to use debt to build wealth. That's the name of the training. Now, debt recycling. This is another good use of debt. And this is where, as you pay off your home loan, you redraw the equity you've built up to invest in another property. See, what may be perceived as bad debt becomes good debt when it earns you an income and can be used to pay back the loan, as well as providing tax breaks. Any excess income can also be fed back into your home loan to pay that off quicker and make further interest savings. Another debt strategy used by the wealthy involves using a loan to diversify their investment portfolio especially for certain affluent individuals who hold a concentrated stock position in a single company. You see, they can borrow against that concentrated position to buy other assets, thereby causing their money to work in two different places simultaneously. You know, you might have heard me talk about this before as velocity investing. I actually put together a very popular training on this very thing a while back, the compound interest scam they're not telling you about. Now, good debt can help you sidestep bad outcomes and even avoid worst case scenarios. You know, for example, a, a private REIA client of mine had a large tax payment coming due last year, April 15th, of course. And this was well before he was expecting a big fat check from one of his flips. And this caused him a serious dilemma. You see, he could have sold off some cash flow properties in his portfolio to pay the tax bill, but that would have required him to eventually pay capital gains tax on those sales and then 
he'd have to replace them all later, which would have pushed back his rat race escape another year or two, at least. So instead, he decided to take out a loan to pay the tax bill, and then he repaid the loan in July when his flip closed. You see, using debt to avoid disruption in your portfolio, that's a really good use of debt as well. Now, I'd be remiss if I didn't point out the risks associated with taking on debt, even if it's good debt. Now, using debt as part of your investment strategy can introduce substantial risks, including borrowing that, that could increase potential losses. Two, your, your losses could exceed the amount initially invested. Three, the value of your investments purchased using debt may not increase. Or if the value does increase, it may not be sufficient to cover the cost of the loan, such as the interest rate and the fees. Or four, you, you may need to sell your investment sooner than intended to cover your interest fees and charges. Or five, if you're unable to repay your loan, the lender may have the right to confiscate and sell your assets to cover outstanding repayments, interest and fees and stuff, right? And then six, you may be liable to pay more tax. And all of these are realistic risks. And to a whimsical, uneducated investor, they're more likely than not. So invest in yourself a little bit up front to educate yourself before you take any big leaps into the deep end of debt. Using other people's money, it's a solid path to getting wealthy if you know what you're doing. Now, if you're inspired by the idea of using debt to create wealth with real estate and harnessing the velocity of money, it might make sense for us to hop on the phone and, and brainstorm a bit of what that might look like for you. So go ahead, head over to reiace.com, answer a few short questions about yourself and what you'd like to accomplish, and then just pick a time that's convenient for you, for us to, to hop on the phone and talk about it. We'll be back with more right after this. Good things may come to those who wait, but better things come to those who go out and get them. Let's get it. Back to the show. Today, we're going to talk to a private REI Ace client who recently just closed her first deal, has a few more lined up, but uh, it all wasn't, wasn't all so smooth sailing as far as got a little bit of a slow start, had to regroup and restart, made some tweaks, and now everything is clicking. And I invite her on to share those things with you so maybe you can learn from her mistakes and her challenges and avoid them, sidestep them yourself. All righty. So, Without further ado, let's start the show and I'll bring on and introduce you to Miss Marie Everett. Marie, welcome to the show. Well, hello. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. You bet. I'm glad we finally were able to coordinate this. You're a very busy girl and uh, thank you for sharing uh, your time with us. So before we begin, just kind of let me know, I don't know, how long ago did we meet? About a year, year and a half ago? A little bit over a year ago, you were my birthday present to myself. Ah, I did not know this. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. I would have worn a bow and everything if had I known. I mean, you know, what are added things? Maybe next year. Maybe we'll add on. Maybe next to year. It. Very good. Yeah. We might have some, a lot more to celebrate next year, the way things are going for you. Very true. But let me know. What, so a year and a half ago, what challenges were you dealing with uh, and, and what was... Uh, I guess, what made this a birthday present? What was the, the, the gift here? What, what were you looking to solve? And uh, what would that have meant to you personally, professionally, had you solved it? So I have been a registered dietitian that has been my career field for the last 10, 12 years. And I was actually, all right, um, I was there after college, got a job out there. And the market at that point was, 
I mean, it was starting to pick up, but it wasn't like it is today. And so I had decided I wanted to buy a property out there as an investment, went through all the kit and caboodle of it. And during my home inspection, which seems to be the crux of everything for me, found out it was kind of a dud for a new build. And even the inspector said, whatever you think it's going to cost, triple it and then add some on top. So I ended up not doing that deal. And I went back to just the regular working in hospitals and skilled nursing facilities. And I kept coming back to some of the different podcasts. Actually, my brother got me on to a couple different ones. And I was listening to how people were doing things, how they were kind of pushing through, getting a little creative. And finally, I happened upon Rich Dad Poor Dad. And I listened to the message for it. I thought, you know what? This is what I want. I want financial independence. Financial security is very important to me in my life. So... This guy obviously has done it really well. Love the message that I got through his book. And then I started watching videos for him. And then I came across one that you two had done with him. And I said, okay, well, if Robert Kiyosaki has talked to this guy. And then this guy's putting out information for free on YouTube that's giving me nine-minute clips of exactly what I'm looking for on how to be non-conventional and still get deals done. I said, all right, let me try and work with this guy. So then I decided, all right, birthday present to yourself. Here you go. Ask for help. Go to somebody who's been there, done that, doing it, and then just, you know, stop trying to do it by yourself. It's not working very quickly. And I'd rather do this, move the skill faster. Got it. Perfect. I'd never heard that before. I didn't know that you saw the interview between the rich dad and myself. That was a lot time up too. So it's a great thing about YouTube. It stays up there forever, right? Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. So that, that's good to know. Thank you. So, when we got started, we got a little bit of a slow start. Were we amid the pandemic when we started? Yeah, we were. So when I first met you, I went out to Las Vegas to do the intro class, the kind of two-day weekend class. Mm -hmm. And then we started doing the private client training the next month. So basically all of the major events you normally would have where you could socialize with people, all of that got put on hold for quite right. a while. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, good. So you got a little bit of a slow start and then uh, we struggled a little bit and then you disappeared for a little while. What happened there? All right. So I live in California. It is a very different market out here. And so while I was trying to go with some of the more creative routes, I was doing driving for dollars. I'd go work out. Then on the way home, I'd spend like 45 minutes to an hour just driving through neighborhoods, sending out postcards that way. I tried doing the Legends Challenge a little bit. And what I kept finding was that the people that I was sending letters to or sending offers to didn't have the right motivation. So then I kind of tried tweaking some strategy and went a little creative with doing some tax strategy. And while it's great, I don't feel like I had enough experience in real estate in general to be able to kind of back up the product that I had to offer. So I decided, I was, this was about six months of trying this, hadn't gotten a deal yet. And then I decided, all right, well, I've got to be able to pay off my birthday present to myself. So I kind of doubled down in hospitals. I ended up having two full-time jobs for a couple of months. So I could just jam pack all of that back in, make sure that I, I didn't uh, have any interest payments on, the, on the, some of the fees. 
that were coming down the pipeline. And so I decided, all right, let me just double down on that, take a little break from real estate. And then I started jumping back in towards the fall. And I decided again, I've been trying it on my own, so to speak. It's not working with what I'm doing by myself. I'm not hitting the right market. I'm not hitting the people that actually have problems and have a need to sell. So let me take a step back, listen to all the things that I've learned so far. And that's when I decided to move forward with a service to help me do my marketing and say, you know what? Somebody else has got to do it better than me. I can put the FaceTime in and do where my stripes are, but trying to figure out these lists and pinpoint it just wasn't working. Got it. All right. So got a little bit frustrated, felt a little bit of pressure up the bills and the finances. So you went back to your, your former career and picked up two jobs, uh, put yourself in a little bit better, more comfortable financial situation, and then decided to start over again. But what you decided to do differently this time was to basically outsource the marketing, outsource the lead generation, right? Correct. Yes. That's what I'm, okay, good. I'm understanding you correctly. Perfect. And you went over to go for close, right? I did. Yeah. Perfect. And then you also decided to go look into a different market other than California. I did. I did. Originally, I was looking into the Texas market and upon happenstance, Josh happened to have a market that was pretty hot and ready to go. And it was over in Georgia, over in Savannah, Georgia. So I decided, well, you know, I've got family in the state. I might be able to write off my flights to go out and visit family. It's working already. Why don't I go ahead and go into that? Because the price point was very similar. And in general, I do know a little bit about the area. So it wasn't somewhere it hadn't been. I had no idea. I had a little bit of information going into it, but I thought, all right, it's ready to go. Let's jump on board. Perfect. And so that's over at Go for Close. And, and Josh is a really good friend of mine. He's a former client. He was an REA's client, just like Marie is. And he went and he did a bunch of deals. I think 130 something in his first year, he kept 80 something as rentals and that provided his passive income. And he went out and started his own company, a lead generation company just for real estate investors. So if you want to go check him out, feel free to. And that's who Marie decided to outsource her, her lead generation to. And then, uh, very, very quickly after she re-engaged and was working with Josh, then finally closed the first deal. And as you can see right here, that was uh, just March 4th. So this was just about three weeks ago as we're recording this. And so what was different about that? What happened there? What was your experience? Because, and I'm going to acknowledge you too, because in the beginning, you know, you were cold calling and, and you were working, you were actually doing the work and, and to little, not very great results. And this time around, it seemed like you got the results really fast. So what, what do you think the difference was other than outsourcing the market? What was your experience on, on the phone talking to sellers, stuff like that? Honestly, it was very helpful to be able to talk to sellers that actually had a need to sell. So in California's market, things are hotter. They know people are, they can put it on the MLS. They know something is going to pop off pretty quickly. You were having a lot of bidding wars on things and people just, the people I was reaching out to didn't have the pain points. They didn't have a reason to sell, particularly, especially not a creative way. And so once I switched markets and I started using Go for Close, it was going towards sellers who actually had been pre-qualified. They had the motivation. And so for all work and time I spent doing 
mojo dialer, doing the multi-line dialers, calling people, trying to get information and see if people were looking to sell and if they might be open to creative offers and things like that. It was so much more helpful once it was actually sellers who had a reason to answer the phone. And these people had already been pre-qualified by one of Josh's team members. So by the time they get to me, I already know they've, they've been willing to sit on the phone with them, tell them some of the information they gave it to me, and then I could just kind of feel out the rest of it, get the rest of the details, and then get into an actual solution for them. Perfect. Okay, so there that that's well that's understood i mean that the foundation of every deal is going to lie within the seller's motivation to sell so if you're finding motivated sellers obviously it's going to be much easier um so but now what's the difference because i know a lot of people are very interested in in doing their business virtually even though i highly recommend against it unless you know you give it a go in your market and you actually try and you can prove that hey it's really tough here and now it's not getting results rather than just assuming it is and that's what you did. So that's why I was like, you have my blessing. Go, go for another market. Let's go do it. How is that process different? Working this from different from the other side of the country, really, and not being able to see the property, not being able to meet the seller face to face. Explain to me how that's been going for you so far. It's actually been going pretty well. I would prefer to be able to do the, all the, the stuff in my own backyard. I do enjoy the social interaction. I like being able to talk to the sellers face to face, really create that rapport with somebody. So now when I'm trying to do it virtually, I need to really pay attention to kind of the way I'm saying things, listening to the pauses for a lot longer. Normally when you're face-to-face, -face, you can see when somebody's done talking. When they're over the phone, it's a little bit more difficult. And so it's having to adapt a little bit. Again, seeing properties through photos only, it's a pretty different experience. At the same point, I'm not a contractor background, but I do understand a lot of basics about the construction process, pricing, things like that. But I've come to the point where I've had to start relying on other people, trying to find who's going to work for boots on the ground for a team. I mean, I've, I was trying to find somebody for over six weeks to just take photos of properties for me. I was going through Yelp and Craigslist, photographers, Facebook groups. I was searching through and I couldn't seem to find anybody. Finally, I've stumbled across a contractor, had a call with him, and then now I've created my first team member, so to speak. So I've got him able to go out, not only take photos for me, but he's also able to run up a little estimate for me. And so now I've kind of changed my process. So originally it was call with the seller, call them back in a couple of days after I ran some comps give them an offer, then send a home inspector over and pay all the money for that and then say, hey, your property isn't what we thought it was. Now I've got to go back and change numbers. And that's, a, I mean, it's a difficult process once somebody's got expectations up front. Then you have to come back and say, your 7 out of 10 is really a 4 out of 10. Let's go back to the, the building blocks. So now this is going to afford me the opportunity where I can just, I know exactly what needs to be done. And I can say, here it is. This is what I can offer you. If you love it, great. If you don't, great. Not a problem. Follow up with them later until that pain point becomes something they want to deal with or keep following up. Got it. Super. So it, you knew nobody in Georgia when you started. And then uh, through a number of phone calls and, you know, it took a, a little bit of time. You found somebody to go and become your boots on the ground, so to speak. So we just built a relationship like you normally would. 
And so you have that good team member. And then what I've noticed that I want to back up before I get to the one thing that I, I think is, is really key. It's been the key to your success so far. But when I was living in Los Angeles, I was working virtually in the Memphis market and the Cleveland market. And we did a lot of deals there. I, mean, I, was, I was responsible for bringing all the properties over to cash flow savvy for Mercedes to sell. But what I found was different from working in my own backyard like I had been previously in Los Angeles was even though I got a yes on the phone a lot of times, just as often as I would in my own backyard, getting the actual signature, my the percentage dropped way down. What What is your process for getting the signature? Has that been a challenge for you at all? Or was that just a unique experience for me? I'd say it's, I get a lot of interest on the first call. Once we start getting into my first offer presentation, it's a, I get a lot of hesitation because I am trying to do either seller financing or interest only payment, which honestly, sometimes they've never even heard of it. And they get so confused that they just tell me no. They're like, nope, I'm sorry. I don't want to do this. And so it's taken a lot of patience to pull it back. And I kind of preempt the conversations when I first do my intro in the first 30 seconds, I'll tell them, look, I will send you a couple of offers when this is done. I'm totally okay with you telling me no. What I want you to do is if you have a question or if you're curious about something or you like a part of something, let me know which part you like. And then I can rework some numbers based on what you've talked about with me. And then I can try and find an offer that's going to be a win-win for both of us. So that's like my first 30 seconds to kind of grease the pathway now because they, especially with that seller financing, they get very confused about it. And then it just automatically turns them to a no. And then they just want to kind of not deal with it. They're like, this isn't traditional. I don't like it. It seems weird. I'm out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you're setting the stage and presenting what we call an upfront contract, so to speak. Like, it's a transition period. This is what we're going to do. And this is what I would expect from you. And it's okay if you say yes or no. Right. So perfectly said, perfectly done. So what is your process for getting the actual signature, the actual contract signed? So what I'll do is I do my intro call. I'm just trying to get information about the property. I am not trying to present an offer on that first call. I tell them I'll call them back in so many days. Then I'll go through, I'll, I'll run my comps. I'll run the rentals, try and figure out based on our conversation, what kind of rehab needs to get done. Then I'll create the three-letter option of intent. And then I'll get them on the phone and say, hey, I'm emailing this over to you right now. These are the three options. Which ones do you seem to like? And so from there, if they don't like them, I tell them, okay, let's get back on the phone in a day or two. And then I'll call back and say, okay, here's the next set. And I'll email it over. And as soon as they kind of give me which way they're leaning, then I'll go ahead and start writing up the purchase contract and then I'll send it over DocuSign. And so, I, I mean, it's gotten a lot of people so far where up front, they say yes. Then once you get to the sign part, they kind of slow down and you see a lot of hesitation. But as long as you keep up with them, that's where I've gotten some of the, the current deals that I have now. And I have some kind of like sitting in the pipeline where they want it, but then they're not fully ready to pull the trigger. So really it just comes down to that consistently following up with them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Got it. Okay, perfect. And so then the other thing was once once you've got it under contract now that I wanted to point out that you do well is, you know, you have your contractor go over there, you have the inspection done. 
And then you share that inspection with the seller saying, hey, this turns out to be different than what we agreed on up front. And so we need to rework the numbers. Yeah, I actually had uh, that call yesterday with the seller. I have two properties under contract. And it's interesting because when I came into it, I'm hearing it's a seven or an eight out of 10. Then I get the home inspection report for both. And my personal opinion is they're like a two out of 10. Maybe we're being generous a four out of 10. I certainly wouldn't feel comfortable living in there, but there are tenants in both of them. So I kind of went through both of the reports with him. Then today I'm going to send over the report so he can see it. And that was just the first call. I didn't even come at him saying, hey, I need to adjust the price. This is not what we talked about. No, I just went through each point and I said, well, okay, you've got a contracting background. How much is this going to cost? Okay, well, now there's this. How much is this going to cost? How much is this going to cost? So I started putting it into his head a little bit, but I haven't even touched the numbers yet. And so I have a my contractor going over on Friday. So he'll give me the actual numbers. So the numbers I have in my head are telling this property way lower than the offer I originally set. But I'm going to wait for that contractor to come through. And then once I have some hard numbers, say, look, from this part of the country and based on the current supply chain, based on what the property currently is like, and I sent you the inspection report, what do you think is fair? And then I'll start with that. And then I'll just start working it back. And if I have to drop both deals, then I have to drop both deals. But at this point, we're technically supposed to close on the 31st. He has a need to sell this property. And we'll see if we might be able to renegotiate some of the terms. So there's less money I need to put up front. Maybe I fix it and re-rent it and just not keep the tenants like I had previously planned because the rent would be higher for market value. And then I could probably, because it's a military town, could probably put it on some of the military websites or a for sale by owner and then kind of flip it on that one and get somebody else in there who maybe wants to do some of that work for themselves or if they need to get in at a lower price point or something like that. Got it. So perfect. Perfect. So the key point there is you're blaming it on the report, you're blaming it on the contractor. Yes, that's exactly to, right. It's, you get to play you know, the good cop to the whole thing, right? It's opinions. And again, because I'm virtual, he knows I'm not going to go look at that property. He knows I'm not walking that property. And so there's no way for me to say, oh, well, it's my opinion. No, no. The home inspection report, there's water on the floor. Your subfloor is water. There's photos of it. Your floor joists have water damage. Here's the photos. Here's the report. Here's the contractor saying this is how much it's going to cost. And then I'll say, you know, it's your property. If you want to fix it and you say it's so much less, a third of what I think it's going to cost, well, then you can fix it. But because I know his motivation, that's not his goal. So I'll just kind of go through it that way and say, okay, well, what do you think is fair based on here? And then this is what the contractor is going to cost. And this is what it's going to cost. So do you want to keep the headache and deal with it yourself? Or do you want to let it go? Right. Perfect. Perfect. Cool. So a few weeks ago, you closed your first deal, made $8,517. You can see it right there. So bring me up to speed. What does business look like as of today after that deal closed? So I have five properties currently under contract, two of which have some title, some clouded title issue that I'm starting to work through. 
Two of them are these two that I just discussed that I need to go back after I have my contractor report. And then one I just picked up about a week and a half ago. And that one, I had actually been speaking with her for about, I want to say about four to five weeks. And when I first spoke with her, she said, okay, this is how much I want. Gave me a number. I ran the numbers and that was just below the 70%. And I said, oh, great. All right. That's what you want. I'll give you that number. Then she took it to her family. The family said, no, we want a little higher because we want whatever the tax assessor's value is. So I think that's an extra, an extra few thousand dollars. So then I said, okay, great. No problem. Here's the contract. So I sent the doctor sign it over. Didn't get a reply. Didn't get a signature on it. So I called her back and she said, well, We've had a family meeting. Some of the younger nephews want to keep the property and family. They don't think that we should sell it. Mind you, she's much older. She's close to 90. I know she's a sister who's 91. So when I was trying to do some of the seller financing options, it was a hard pass. She said, my sister's 91. She just wants the money. So sorry, <laughs> we're not doing any, any seller financing. So I would call her once a week. I'd set it on the calendar. I'd call her back. We'd have a nice 20 minute chat. I'd say, well, how's the play do it? What'd they decide? What was your group about this week? She'd tell me, okay, well, I've given them one more week and I'm going to let them come up with their own funding options or however they want to try and buy this property. And if they can't, then we'll talk. So I kept doing that once a week, once a week. And by the time that we finally did agree, sign the contract, she actually told me other people were asking it on the property. She had conversations with other people who were interested buyers and she chose me. I said, wow, that's great. Love it. So it was a lot of it was just creating that rapport with her, consistently following up, not pressuring her, but just asking questions and saying, what's your family think right now? What do you want to do about it? What does your sister want to do about it? And just okay, well, dear, I'll call you back next week. We'll see how things are going. And it was just kind of following up that way that got that one, that one closed. Super. So. Super. Yeah. It's a people business and people do business with people that they like and they trust and they know that care about their situation. And, and that comes through very ethically with you. So I'm not, I'm not surprised that that's working for you. So good. So let me know this. What have been your favorite things working with Epic? Say your three favorite things. Three favorite things. The consistency that I have found through the weekly mentoring calls, I find that that has helped me because I know there's other people that are in the same situation. So when I was first into it, it was really more just listening more than asking too many questions because I knew I was kind of in those intro stages. Then once I started getting more into it, doing the marketing, doing the cold calling, needing some questions answered, it was nice to be able to have that group of people to kind of bounce some ideas off of that, again, they're in the same situation or they've been there fairly recently, or maybe they figured out another way that might be a little faster. Uh, let's see, other favorite things about Epic. Now that the pandemic's on the back burner over there, it's nice that I'm coming to the event that's gonna be what, next week, next weekend? The Accelerator, yes. Yeah, the Accelerator training. So it'll be nice to actually see some people face to face again. I mean, I have gone a couple of times to that beginner training because it just, I quite enjoy learning in people to people. Digital works, but for me, people to people is really where my strengths lie. 
And so being able to go in to do those trainings and just network with people and just be able to talk with you and say, hey, here's a question, here's a situation. And just listen to some of the other creative ways people are doing things as well that I can take 5% of this person and 3% of that idea and just start kind of compiling together. And then let's see my third favorite thing about Epic. Um, well, I've been successful. <laughs> so it, uh, it wasn't straightforward at the front. I knew it was going to take a little bit of time. I didn't know how long it was going to take. But the fact was I was able to hold myself accountable through the group and keep going, keep asking questions. And so every time there was a hurdle or a problem, it wasn't the end all be all. It wasn't the end of the train stop. It was just a hurdle to get through, ask some questions, figure out a way around it. If this doesn't work, try that. If that doesn't work, try this and just keep moving through. And so the group is very supportive about, all right, well, everybody has to start somewhere and eventually keep doing it. Even if you keep falling on your face, eventually your face is going to hit past the finish line. So there you go. <laughs> That's a painful way to do it, but for sure. But uh, you got a deal closed. You got five more under contract. Fantastic. So you have many more paydays ahead of you very, very soon. What do you see for the future overall with regard to your real estate investment? So I have a feeling my real estate is going to split on the two pathways. So I'm going to continue in the Georgia market. I'm going to continue the goal is buy and hold right now. It is, if I can't hold it, flip it to somebody else who has a better opportunity to do that. But long-term, I'm going to get into residential assisted living. So I'm going to pair up my background in nutrition and my background in real estate and really create an environment there where I can support the baby boomers when they're starting to have me to live they can't live on their own, but they don't want to go into a big box facility where it's very impersonal. People fall through the cracks. There's very little room for customizing based on the person and the individual. And there's just not a lot of passion. They don't have a reason to live. They don't have a drive, something to keep them going. So my goal is to start creating small assisted living homes in addition to doing the investing virtually for now. Perfect. Perfect. Finish this sentence for me. I almost didn't work with Epic because. Because I was going to have to pay for it. Yeah, it was uh, a little sticker shop up front because it's, I, I, my history is I grew up as a saver. So it was, okay, you just save, you save, you save, you save, you save for this far off retirement goal. You never break into the piggy bank. And so I kind of had to take a step back and say, okay, I get that mentality. I understand where I'm coming from, but I also understand if I'm trying to do this much faster and I've tried doing it over the last few years, I wasn't successful on my own, that it's worth it to me to put that investment into myself. And for the speed of how things have started to progress, it has definitely been a worthwhile endeavor. Perfect. Having that fear up front, which is totally normal, and, and most people share something very, very similar. And you've had your initial success here just a few weeks ago. You have four or five other things lined up. You have a, a, a very clear vision of what you want to do for the future. So what has this experience meant to you personally? Honestly, it has really captured my drive of things. So for a while, I was kind of feeling like I was on cruise control with my career that I had going. And once I was able to kind of click into the real estate and started clicking into 
the rich dad, poor dad mentality and started to work myself away from being an employee. Right now I'm a business owner and starting to work on the, the entrepreneur side and the investor side of things. It has given me the opportunity to get to financial independence very quickly with the near-term future of hitting financial freedom, where for me, that is the most important thing. That's always been my driving factor for everything that I do is trying to make sure I have that financial independence and then freedom that I don't have to be dependent on an employer somewhere that can just not like my personality that day and tell me, you know what? We don't want you to come back, which has happened before. So I don't like that insecurity of having to depend on somebody else. So by putting it on to me and saying, okay, well, it's half of one, six dozen of the other. So whichever way you want to go at it, I'm responsible for it ultimately. So I might as well change it, change the game and, and put it into my side so I can get to that goal faster. So that's kind of how I, I came around to it. It's awesome. Great. Well, Marie, thank you for sharing your story. I was excited to hear it firsthand. We, we engage each and every week and, uh, you know, we've got to know each other. And, but I haven't, I've never really been able to just talk to you one on one and get your whole story. And so I appreciate you sharing. I know everyone, there's plenty of people out there watching that find it and inspiring. They're going to find it very helpful. And uh, so thank you for paying that forward. Yeah, I guess that's it. I really appreciate you. If you'd like to walk in the same footsteps and walk through the same door that Marie did, you can by going over to reiace.com, answer a few questions, pick a time for a stop on the phone, and we'll see if this is going to be a good fit. If you're looking for something much more uh, simple and you're just getting started, you're starting from scratch, I put something special for you over at mattsfreetraining.com. It's a short little 30-minute video kind of laying out the... Uh, the basics of real estate investing. And it's a good, really good starting point. So if you're not ready to go in and, and make the investment that Marie did into herself working together one-on-one, -on -one, perfectly okay. Maybe this got to be more up your, your alley. So go to mattsfreetraining.com. All right. Cool, Marie. And uh, thank you. I'll see you very soon at the Accelerator. Yep. I'll see you soon. You bet. Take care. And that wraps up the epic show. If you found this episode valuable, who else do you know that might too? There's a really good chance you know someone else who would. And when their name comes to mind, please share it with them and ask them to click the subscribe button when they get here and I'll take great care of them. God loves you and so do I. Health, peace, blessings, and success to you. I'm Matt Terrio, living the dream. Yeah, yeah, we got the cash flow. You didn't know, homeboy, we got the cash flow. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.